This is the Zen Nova Scotia podcast with talks by Cohen Franz. If you would like to support and be part of our community, you can start by visiting zennovascotia.com. Tonight we get two for one. We've been talking about the paramitas. And as I explained, there are ten paramitas or, or paramis in the Theravada system. And then in the Mahayana, there are six plus four. And it so happens that one in that plus four is extremely similar to one in the Theravada ten. So similar that I think they're probably the same. They're, I suspect or I feel that this is a, a case of the two traditions talking about the same thing in different ways. Uh, similar to how we've, we've encountered over and over this nirvana versus realization. We can switch them out. So tonight we, we reach aditana, which is determination. And in the Mahayana there's pranidana, which is vow. I think these are two different angles on the same question. But it's interesting to consider what, what the feeling is behind each. When I think of determination, I think of the, the immovable object. And in fact, uh, some older writings that speak to Aritana have this, this image of, of being like a rock, being like a stone. You stay. You say, I am, I am going to stay here. I am resolute. I will sit here until I extinguish all desire or until I reach the eighth level of concentration or I, whatever that is. That when the Buddha sat down beneath the Bodhi tree and he said, I will not get up from this spot until I have found what I'm looking for. That is this determination. Whereas when I think of vow, I think of something like the unstoppable force. In college, we used to spend hours talking about what would happen if these two things met. <laughs> what if the unstoppable force meets the immovable object? It was very satisfying. But vow, in so many ways, is about driving forward, regardless of the obstacles regardless of what you might encounter along the way. The feeling is very similar. It's just a, a little different twist. It turns out, though, that aditana, in addition to being translated as determination, is sometimes translated along the lines of empowerment. There is a power to this steadfast resolution, to this determination, to this vow. I really like this word empowerment. It raises for me the question of what 
since we have the model of the bodhisattva. What is a bodhisattva, the bodhisattva's superpower? I think different people could say different things, but my simple conclusion is that the bodhisattva's superpower is not giving up. I read an article recently by a writer, a novelist, and I, I, I meant to remember her name and I, I forgot. But she was talking about this idea, this notion we have in the culture that everyone has a novel inside of them, just waiting to get out. Everyone has one. And she was speaking to that from the, from the perspective of, of practice, from the actual practice of writing. And in a sense, she, she said, well, that, in a sense, that may be true. It may be that we all carry this, this thing that we want to put out there. This, this kind of, this story that captivates us, that we're convinced will captivate other people. Maybe everyone is walking around with that in their heads. But she said, the thing that distinguishes that experience from the experience of someone who actually writes is that a writer is able to watch that vision die. <laughs> that rather than carry that around in your head as this pure thing, if you try to commit it to paper, you will destroy it. You will watch it decay. You will watch it crack. You will watch it crumble. It will never be that pure thing. Are you able to do that? Are you able to put something out there at the cost of the thing itself and stick with it to the end? She said, that's what a writer does. And that's why there are so few of them. Because that's too painful. It's too hard. And when I read this, I, it was one of these, you know, every once in a while you read something that's just so true. And it strikes me not only from the, the writing perspective, which is, is so, it's such a keen observation, but how this applies to almost everything. I think, I always use the example of marriage and I think it gives the impression that, that I've suffered a lot around marriage or something. And it, actually the truth is, is really the opposite. But, but it's been a real, period, uh, real area of, of inquiry for me. And I think marriage fits this very well. Because before you get married, I think that, that especially if, you're, if you've never been married before or if you're young, uh, you can have a fantasy about what marriage is. It's very beautiful. It's just beautiful. And every morning there's French toast, right? And, and, and then you get married and you realize that, that it's incredibly complicated. Because human beings are complicated and you're intertwined with another person. 
and it doesn't look like you thought it would. Even if it's wonderful, there's loss. Anytime you commit to something, there's loss. Because it cannot be what you signed up for. Not in my experience, anyway. How do you deal with that loss? For some people, it's too much. And they say, if I can't have that thing in my mind, I don't want this. And some people say, oh, this is interesting. And they try to see it through. Because in doing so, there is loss, yes, but there's also beauty and there's revelation. And so obviously I, I come with this, this notion tonight because I'm thinking of the work of a bodhisattva and the work of spiritual practice in general. It really sounds great. It sounds so beautiful. If you had forced me as a younger person to, to go into some detail about what I thought the fruits of spiritual practice would be, I wouldn't exactly have, maybe I would have been able to hold myself back from making it sound supernatural, but it would have been just a millimeter short of that. That everything would look different. Everything. And everything would smell different. And I would hear things that other people couldn't hear, like a dog. Right. That I would have perception beyond what I had right then. There's this feeling that there's a world that we aren't seeing. Right. I thought, I'm going to see that world. In Dogen's instructions for Zazen, he uses this phrase, resolute stability. And and some version of this resolute stability shows up a long time before Dogen and many, many times from from very early teachings. Some some take on resolute steadiness, resolute whatever that is. He speaks of resolute stability. What he says is that all Buddhas in all places and at all times have sat have just sat in Zazen in resolute stability. And we read this, and it sounds very physical. You know, that they just, they just sat like this. And they did not move, right? And winds are blowing at them, and people are shouting at them, or whatever that is. That can be a very powerful image, but there's another way to hear this which is the long game. There are very few things in life more disappointing than Zazen. Let's say it. It looks beautiful, 
And it promises so much. And the contents of it, when you open the lid, are your own mind and nothing else. And that is not what we're looking for. I wanted to see something that was better than my own mind. I wanted to see something that had bright colors. And what I got was a really big dose of me. And I've been doing it for about 25 years now, and that's, I open the box and I get the same thing. It's bottomless. And most people quit. And, and I don't mean that as a judgment, because in fact it's the most natural thing to do in the world. You buy something, you open the package, it's not what you thought you bought. So you send it back. The artistry of this, of this work, is that you open that box, you see what's really in it, and you stay there. This is determination. This is vow. It's holding on. Not in a needy way, not in a desperate way, not in a delusional way to the thing that you had before, but to the inspiration of it. To keep and maintain inspiration in the face of disappointment. If you could make a pill that did that, everyone would buy it. It's hard. And it requires that we don't look around everywhere for the next thing. You stay where you are. And you ride something out until you see what's at the end. Does that mean that you should ride everything out? No. (laughs) Some things are harmful. Some relationships are harmful. Some endeavors prove fruitless. But even fruitless endeavors, if they're not harmful, can have great depth. It's the rare person who's willing to go all the way to the bottom of a hole to see what's there. What's the takeaway from this? For me, the takeaway is... One, don't run away. But two, make friends with inspiration. Be aware in yourself of what inspires you. 
in anything, not just speaking specifically of this practice. Find what that thing is and keep it in your line of sight, even as everything else falls apart. That's what I wish for everyone. It's what I try to do in myself. And maybe that's a good place to stop. For more information about Zen, our practice, and how you can support and take part in our community, please visit zennovascotia.com.